This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, celebrating Reunion Weekend, where alumni have gathered to reconnect and learn. This is a special presentation of Women at Work. Here's your host, Laura Zero. Welcome to Women at Work and this special Reunion Radio edition of our show. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, celebrating Wharton's Alumni Reunion Weekend here at Business Radio. On today's show, you're going to meet two of our alumni who not only managed to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace, they've done so in ways they never would have expected on the day they graduated from Wharton, and we're going to hear their stories. My first guest is Susan Gantz. She started her career, like many of our alumni, on Wall Street. When her father died unexpectedly, her mom asked her to put those astute business skills to use and take a look at the business. What was supposed to be a temporary involvement has lasted for around 30 years or so. Um, Susie's the longstanding and highly innovative CEO of Lion Brothers, the leading designer and manufacturer of apparel identity systems. Susie serves on a number of corporate, governmental, and academic and not-for-profit boards, a clear sign of, A, all that she has to offer and her enormous generosity of spirit. Um, These boards include the corporate boards of PRS Guitar, Barcoding Incorporated, Thames Technology, and Credly, a digital credentials company. And along with the Board of Visitors at Townsend University, Board of Directors of Sustainable Health Enterprise, based in Rwanda, of all places, and the John Hopkins Tech Transfer and Innovation Advisory Board that I'm guessing is a special passion. Um, she received her MBA in finance and multinational management from, the Wharton, from Wharton, following her BA in economics from the University of Florida. And while all of that is clearly lots of reasons to want to learn from Susie, it's her curiosity, her generosity of spirit, and her wisdom that makes me love her so. Susie, Welcome to Women at Work. Thanks, Laura. It's so great to be back on campus. And it's so filled with energy and joy today. It's just amazing. And the faces, all ages, all stages, everyone looks beautiful. I know. It's really incredible. See, one of the things I was thinking about this morning was, and I don't know if you remember this, it was when we were just starting Women at Work, and I reached out to you to kind of get anchored and oriented and to, to help you like, give me some perspective on what matters, what should we be talking about. And I remember so vividly the way that you talked about the importance of each other, of community, of networks, and how we make an arena where we help each other be successful. I think it was also the first time I heard Madeleine Albright's quote, there's a special place in hell for women who don't support each other. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you about this and also say now that you're in such a leadership role, where do you find mentorship and support? Oh, goodness. Great question. Mentorship comes from every avenue of the earth. You know, (laughs) if you can believe it, it comes everywhere. And it comes through, um, mentorship comes through, for me, in this spirit of generosity that others share. It's the ultimate gift in many ways. Did you go through the process of seeking mentors when you started your career or or how did you move into seeing mentors wherever they may emerge sure it, it, it came from this notion of just seeking advice seeking sage wisdom you know you see you you gain skills along the way but I think it's this 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 idea of where how can we find different approaches how do we find different perspectives because you know in in expanding our horizons, we gain, you know, this outside in view that then becomes part of who we are. I love the way that you talk about it because for two reasons. One is it sounds very similar to how we approach being creative 
and how we approach innovation, which is where do we learn? Where do we find ideas? How do we put them to use? But it's also freed from what I think a lot of people describe as like a contractual um, tit-for-tat relationship. Like, hello, Ms. Gantz, I am Laura Zara. Would you be my mentor? Right. And that would, that would sort of put something in, the, in, this, in this box of tactical mentorship. Yes, that's the word I'm looking for. That's perfect. <laughs> right. And, and is mentorship this tactic of you ask, I tell? Or is it this relationship that is more organic in nature that expands, you know, as we expand and it contracts in terms of time, but it never goes away if, if, if like any good relationship as it evolves. Do you have young people and people within your own company that are coming to you for that kind of tactical mentorship? They come for tactical mentorship, and my goal is to be able to provide expansive mentorship. So they may come thinking, what do you think about X? And the, and the question isn't that, you know, much of the time, it's not about that specific question. It's trying to get to what's the bigger question they're trying to, you know, what's, what are they trying to understand? So it's less about, you know, how do I, and more about what approach do I? And this, this notion of anticipatory guidance, these, these, this um, life is a journey. And within that, what is it, what is it that I need to know as we um, you know, move along this journey? And, and, and so it becomes less tactical in nature and more of a, like a river, which is as you, move, as you move along, what is it that you need to know at what stage? So anticipatory guidance becomes a big um, element of that which we can uh, gain and give. It's such a phenomenal concept and phrase. Um, and the first time I heard you say it, I remember thinking, I waited my whole life for that. How did you become aware of that as a concept and a thing to aim towards as a gift you give to other people? I think part of it was actually being a part of an organization, if I can tell you, called Committee of 200, which is eight gals that meet regularly. And and the the gals were younger than myself and older than myself. And so and they were not not just and, and all had run companies or were running companies. And the questions that were asked and the the expression of what was important and what did it mean, you know, meant that you know, it it, it required thinking, gosh, if I if I could listen, hear, understand and also share, it means that along these pathways everyone would be a little bit better prepared for life's transitions. but And so part of it came from almost like a village of women at different stages of career all helping each other. That's right. A safe village. Talk so, about how it was made safe. Sure. That's, well, first of all, in this, in this group of eight, there are some ground rules about confidentiality. Okay. So information may be expressed, but it's shared within the eight. And the second is that it really is a village, so that within that we have each other's backs. And and those are two, I think, two of the ground rules of being able to really get to the heart of matters, having safe spaces to be able to express questions beyond just the tactical. And the other is to be able to provide that guidance so that as the time as as the time, you know, continues that oh, that nugget, that piece of wise you know, that sage advice 
is something that that you know stays with me. I want to back up for a second to just some of the practical stuff. What? How did you find out about the Committee of Two Hundred? What was it? How is it organized? Does it still exist? Sure, it still exists. It's for um, leading entrepreneurs and corporate executives. However, there are other, and it's a wonderful organization. So for those that are coming up, and and you know considering should should I be part of something that can provide me the opportunity to learn from others? This is one organization that does that. Although there are many. You know, as Cheryl Sandberg had started her Lean In Circles, yes, and Morton starts its groups of women, these are all examples of places where people, women can come to share. And, and again, that safe space of understanding that we often lead, we lead integrated lives. Right? Talk, talk to me about that. Sure. So the integration of life is we have our personal lives, we have our professional lives, and much of what we're juggling is both of them. It's not that, it's not that we compartmentalize my career life from my, my three kids that I'm trying to raise and trying to be home by X to satisfy their requirements. Um, it, it, we lead integrated lives in the fluidity of understanding that, you know, what we bring to, what we bring to the, the career and our, 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 our career journey is so influenced by our home and how we think and vice versa completely so as a mom of three in that journey you know one comes you know you face like the frightening and joyous experience of becoming a mom how did you see it change you as a business as a creative business leader as a thinker as a member of a professional community because I know for me there are very clear ways that I see that I'm different as a result of parenting Sure. Pa- parenting has changed the way I think completely. As a parent, I, you know, each, of, each child ha- learns differently. And with each type of learning style and expression, it's adjusting that style to, be, to, to make them the most successful human being they can be. And so in looking at whether it's an issue of learning or whether it's an issue of connecting or how, they, how to best maximize their talents and, and, and you know, motivate them so that they, are, they, they have a growth mindset, um, I think the same approach comes to comes to the workplace. So for us, you know, I was looking at our management team. We have uh, a, a, in our leadership team there there are people from China, from uh, Taiwan, from Scotland, from the UK. In this leadership team, women, men, all you know, this this uh, beautiful, uh, rich um, amalgam of of cultures, and it's, it's no different than children. Which is <laughs> how, how do you find meaningfulness in each of their expressions, which is what do, and, and each of them communicate in a different way. And it's, it's funny, you're reminding me of something I thought about in terms of teachers, where it struck me that somehow the teacher, a teacher, every teacher, I think, finds a way to love each kid in that room, to see the promise in each kid in that room, to see what makes them special, to have compassion for them. Otherwise, how do they teach them? And it's, um, and I've admired it, and I'm trying to learn from it. And it feels similar to, I think, what you're talking about with parenting, that if we think about whether it's our kids, the kids if we're teaching, but more, more specific to the topics today, that as managers, to see what's special and wonderful in each person and hold that up and aim towards that, it seems like they perform better and the whole dynamic is richer. I think you've captured it beautifully. And there's the essence, which is in today's environment, we talk about words like diversity and inclusivity and these things, and it begins with empathy. 
you know, to bring in different cultures without having a sense of empathy for cultural differences or, or a sense of taking the time to understand a person's motivations. You know, what, right. is it that, what motivates them is, is we're, we're, being, um, we're, we're being a little bit um, uh, close-minded with regard to the opportunity and what it could be. So, Susie, so, so you walked into a family-run company. And you were relatively young at the time. How old were you when you came in full-time? I was 28. And were you a parent yet? I was not a parent. I was single, uh, had not a care in the world, and came into this manufacturing company where there was, there was uh, management in place but having some real challenges. And so when you came in, I'm going to guess um, that the company was not quite as diverse and creative as it is today. Is that fair to say, or am I selling it short? Oh, I, no, I think, I think that can, <laughs> that's very accurate. Um, you know, today within our industry, I'm so pleased that our, our, our company is really conce- considered really one of the innovators, one of the top innovators in what we do. And that has absolutely come from diversity of perspectives. So t- tell me, because this is, A, it's the one of the many wonderful stories that comes with your company, but it's also, I think, a roadmap as we are trying so hard collectively to make a difference in this regard. How did you move towards that kind of inclusive thinking, diverse culture, and bring creative practices into the community in a way that has propelled you to be such a leader in the field? It it took a long time (laughs) to say, but I look at the progress. It's interesting. When I look at the progress of 30 years, it's really the past seven years, the past five years, the past three years that has brought about this, this, this change and, and with its speed. Um, we brought in an entire new generation. One is because we had to, and then as we brought in young thinking and integrated thinking, we found that everyone had a place around the table that young thinking needed experience and wisdom and wise needed energy and new ways of, of, of thinking about things and doing things. And so with this is this amalgam of talent, which is just operating at a, at a rapid speed. So um, I think of you setting the table for groups of people to come together in all different parts of your life, um, but particularly at work, as you're bringing in these kind of young, interesting, diverse people with different ways of thinking, and you have a trusted team that's been with you who you also love. I mean, I've heard you talk about your team before with great respect and affection. Um, in the nitty-gritty, how do you get them to hear each other? How do you get through those first kind of awkward meetings and the, the understandable interpersonal dynamics where people don't yet understand each other? So we have eight around the table, and all of us speak English, but sometimes we don't speak the same language. So with that, you know, we be... <laughs> Can I borrow that? It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> and, and we've been in this together long enough to, to back up, to, to know that if we're off kilter, if, there, if there's something, uh, there's a sense of respect to be able to back up just a moment to say, what did you mean by that? that clarifying statement that gives somebody a space to be able to explain themselves. Because what we understand is language, part of language is really understanding the context of the expression, not just the word itself. And so with that, a, a, a Scot may, some, may say something that means very <laughs> something very different than an American. And so we, we take a step just to the side to say, can you please clarify and what do you mean by that? And this isn't taking anything away from anybody. Rather, it's giving space to understand. 
Uh, by the way, this is a special reunion radio edition of Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I couldn't be more excited to be talking with Susie Gantz, the CEO of Lion Brothers and a proud Wharton alumna. Um, Susie, part of what's so touching in the way that you're describing this and also compelling to me is the, that what's embedded in it is how you learn to listen. You were talking before about um, really zeroing in and hearing what is it that somebody needs guidance on, like when you were talking about mentorship that, and that difference of is it tactical, is it anticipatory guidance. But at the heart of that is not what you're saying. It's how you learned to listen to hear what people need. And it sounds like in these group dynamics where you're trying to help people speak the same language while they're speaking English and really understand each other, that um, your ability to know when to ask that question comes with how you're listening. How did you become such a good listener? Well, I'll flip it back to you, Laura. <laughs> I think, you know, as, as we, we know one another, um, the human centricity of being able to design and, and have inclusivity by design mm-hmm. is, is central here, which is, uh, you know, experience of probably getting it wrong. Right. <laughs> you know, when they say, you know, um, you know, the mother of invention here, it's, it's amazing how human centricity can begin with, you know, just getting something wrong or making sure that a voice, you know, and, and ensuring that as a result of that getting it wrong, let's see what gets, what, what, what can bring it right. So that brings me to um, one of those things I love to talk about is how do we perceive the getting it wrong? What words do we use to describe it? On a previous show, we called, you know, we have a new F word and it's failure. <laughs> we make mistakes, we get things wrong, but failure assigns it a different kind of absoluteness um, that just you can't recover from. So talk to me about how getting it wrong at different stages of your career and how you you make sense of it, and now how you help others cope with that emotionally. Sure. In the in the design world, they call it prototyping. It's so interesting, <laughs> right? right? And so this whole, yeah, at art school we called it trying, right? <laughs> and you know, and we take a personal view of I'm a failure versus I'm 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 not meeting I'm I'm failing or I'm not meeting what I hope to meet. You know, and and the the whole sense of emotion attached to that sense of failure is an interesting thing. When when all we are is really just learning. Right. And I and I think um, I like to think of it as the difference between and tell me if this feels like right and useful. Um, it's the difference between I'm failing or my this work was not successful. Oh, it's not me. It's the thing I made. It's absolutely the thing I made and giving yourself the freedom to say it's the thing I made, not me. Therefore, <laughs> let me try a different approach. And so and as we look at these this this you know, notion of approaches and navigation, you know, it's less about getting the exact thing right than figuring out the approach. And um, it's, as you're saying this, I'm thinking about all the different arenas in which um, this comes to light, you know, and also that integration your whole life. There's, you know, how you've raised three kids to go be brave and creative and try and do things that matter, how you've developed this company to be so successful and innovative. Um, And as a parent, and as a designer and an innovator, you know, it's um, I'm always curious about how we strike the right balance of, sh- of, you know, making the room to try to be creative, to iterate, to um, learn by having it not work and doing it again. And how to also pace that and structure that so that the bigger the, that the the non-negotiable goals are met, particularly when you're talking about a corporate setting. 
which, which is challenging. As an entrepreneur, there's a lot more space to be able to try and fail and, proto and, and try again in a different method. In a corporate setting, that sense of judgment is, is uh, you know, has, takes on its own life. The, the, I think th this is one of the top challenges with regard to corporate America is how do we create the space not just for inclusivity and diversity, but how do we create the space for people to try and, and in particular, giving those we want to include risk exposure. How do we give them the ability to try and uh, uh, exposure to something where they may not be comfortable with the notion of risk? A therapist use the exposure <laughs> to make people comfortable within an uncomfortable setting. And I think how, uh, about how do we provide this time space for, for people to do that? And it's baby steps. It's not, you know, hey, let's, let's you know, give them the keys to the, to the whatever. But, so is that part of putting people in um, new situations, situations where they're not wholly confident, but where you see that there's their, the capacity to grow into it? Absolutely. And, and again, baby steps, you know, uh, places where they have the opportunity to succeed and fail, but it won't be fatal to their careers. <laughs> One of the things that... Um, I was talking with Patty McCord from Netflix about this and Kim Scott about it, is this notion of radical honesty or radical candor. And um, it hearkened me back to my art school days of what it's like to participate in a critique where you put all your work on the wall and everybody does it. And it's almost like you're naked, but it's not you. It's your work. And everybody in the room gives you criticism on it. And, and you listen hungrily once you get used to that experience because you want to learn and make it better, but it's hard. We did that in art school with, you know, a um, the, the whole social construct of its school, their teachers, their grades. Um, how do you look at that kind of honest, critical discourse in an environment where you still want people to be kind? I think the construct that you're talking about, first of all, has has – it is within a construct. So within the larger framework of organizations and society, it's challenging Be because, again, you have cultural differences. You know, in our, in our uh, China operations, this whole, this whole notion of saving face becomes something critical. So how do you not just can you give radical honesty, but how do you give radical honesty? Right. right. So it's interesting because it also then has a cross-cultural dimension that you need to consider if you're going to try and instill an innovative spirit there. Absolutely. Or rather leverage the innovative spirit that's there but we may not know how to speak to. Right. So if there, if there is a promotion of culture within that, whether it be an art school, whether it be an organization of radical honesty, again, you're creating four walls where it's safe to be radically honest. Like in the village of the Committee of 200. Exactly. So when you talked about safety there... You know, the first thing you said, it's absolutely confidential. So, because um, I think it's worth noting that that kind of confidentiality doesn't just mean you're not spilling each other's business secrets. Because you're talking about all the parts of you, and it's a safe place to talk about the things that you're afraid of, ashamed of, struggling with. The vulnerability of being human. right? And, and in essence, you know, can't we all become better through... Uh, being able to express our vulnerabilities so that someone else can have a different perspective about our vulnerabilities. But um, the irony is it takes a certain confidence in order to be able to be ready to open yourself up like that. It does. And, and it, takes, it takes the confidence in institutional structures to be able to do that in their own way. And therein lies the challenge, which is, you know, again, we're seeing a lot of uh, – we're seeing change within – as an example, something as simple as the Me Too movement. 
You know, in our, in our industry, we work with many of the apparel, athletic apparel companies that are going through cultural challenges because of, uh, you know, what they see as, a, as a, you know, the old boys culture, if mm-hmm. you will. And many industries, you know, we're, we're not specific, but many of the industries are like this, which is how do we change? So instead of making things like a football team, it's more like an orchestra. And so, and with that, every instrument has a, a, a sound, a voice, a place within the ultimate sound of the piece. So as a business leader, and I know it, um, a deeply conscientious one that's thought about supporting and advancing women throughout your whole life and career, um, how did you take the Me Too movement and talk about it within your own organization? Because everybody's talking about it. And I'm curious to see when you want to make room for dialogue that's productive. How did you handle that as a leader? So, um, well, and it, and it's educating all, right? Remember this cultural diversity of, of um, you know, uh, within our, even our leadership team has meant both formal and informal dialogues, and informal and formal messages. So I'll, you know, we have. Uh, training, we have dialogues, but we also do things informally where we'll have stand-ups, and each each voice in those stand-ups become important. So it's not just the person who's leading it or the command and control. It's that each voice truly is important. And it also sounds like you're looking at all the different places where voices are shared to make those values evident, not unlike parenting. <laughs> That's right. Each touch point becomes important, whether it's visible or invisible. I mean, you can have all the visible programs you want, but again, it may be the undercurrents that are essentially, you know, creating an environment for, um, you know, that aligns with uh, Me Too. So I also know that you are a devoted lifelong learner. With the little bit of time we have left, what are the next places you're looking to learn and grow? You know, I'm, so I'm an empty nester as of this year. Congratu- is, it, is congratulations in order or is it a little bittersweet? Oh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's been first year and, and it's both. It's, it's, you know, I love the pace of, of, of uh, kids and also in, and I'm enjoying this next stage of, you know, what's next. And I think learning for me comes in all areas. Again, it's, it's almost a little bit like balanced curiosity. So um, in terms of day-to-day, I have a wonderful team that's executing beautifully, and so it allows me the opportunity to be able to focus on strategic innovation. And again, strategic innovation comes in, you know, it's an example in all spaces and places. So is it, you know, merging our physical and digital worlds? Is it, you know, how are we going to make an impact in Baltimore where I live? Is it looking at how we create economic systems that work for the future? So I, I, I think, and, and then the personal sense of, I think it moves from, this balance of mind heart i hope that it moves a little bit towards a little bit to uh the heart side i gotta tell you my heart is full as always because i got to spend some time with you Susie. thank you so much for joining us on women at work thanks for having laura it's really been a treat i'm laura zarrow and this is women at work on business radio on sirius xm 111 for more guest interviews check out our wharton business radio highlights podcast on itunes and google play 